everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Today, I'm so excited because we have on Allison Horrocks and Mary Mahoney, who are friends and now authors and historians who have a very popular podcast about American Girl dolls that was called American Girls, but is now called Dolls of Our Lives. And last week, their book, Dolls of Our Lives, came out, and I got a chance to read an advanced copy and interview them, and I had so much fun. It's a combo of the brand's history, a travel log of them trying to discover more about its origins, kind of a memoir that talks through their experiences in the doll fandom and in the broader AG universe and it goes beyond the historical dolls and talks about like the magazines and the grin pins and the plays and the pen pals and just kind of a lot of the uh, lore involved in this brand that is very beloved by many Beths out there, myself included. Weirdly, I mean, American Girl nostalgia has kind of been a cornerstone, not only of this podcast for many years, but like even just my social media presence in general, like American Girl dolls were one of the first things, like when Insta Stories came out in 2017, was it? The dolls were one of the first like long form stories I did that got me like a handful of followers. And I remember realizing, I mean, more so than (laughs) doormats, it was one of like my first points of connection with like girlhood and internet followers in terms of having this like shared history with something so important to us that at that point in 2017 had been kind of dormant in our minds. And it all started, yeah, in late 2017, I believe I publicly accused my mom of buying an off-brand Felicity gown because it had pink bows instead of a lace bodice, the blue taffeta Christmas number. And then you guys through DM informed me that the dress actually came with two stomachers and the pink bow was one of them. And not only did you teach me that the word stomacher was a thing, it also gave my mom the justice she deserved 25 years after I accused her of going all Kirkland on on my doll clothes. I I really thought she was like getting, I mean, back in the day, we'd call them knockoffs. Now, I guess they'd be dupes. But back then, I was not into dupe culture for the dolls. In hindsight, I'm not sure why the same girl that raged against knockoff doll clothes then confidently marched her way up to Canal Street to buy a Please Return to Turfany's necklace. Uh, I'm nothing if not inconsistent in my convictions, but I think I speak on behalf of those of us very steeped in catalog culture that we did not want to stoop to buying dupes. We wanted the real deal. You can't put lipstick on a pig. You can't apply a dark stain to your average doll dresser and call it a colonial clothes press. I don't make the rules. It's just not historically accurate. I like to jokingly position myself as more of a snob than I think I was as a kid. It's just like funny to be picky and to have absolutely no money to your name and like a kindergarten education. But yeah, I can see myself getting a knockoff Felicity canopy bed and being like, "Mm, does the curtain match the drapes? It's like, no, I'm not making an inappropriate joke about redheads. I actually don't think these curtains match Felicity's bed hangings. This is an off-brand gingham. Anyway. You know, I could talk about doll furniture for eternity. I, um, yeah, and then I, I started to post about the American Girl dolls like more regularly, just kind of randomly on Instagram. I feel like even outside of the podcast. At one point, I made memes out of the dolls responding to the 2019 new doll, Blair, who, as we know, like her big struggle wasn't like being an orphan, you know, xenophobia, slavery, 
She was struggling with food sensitivities, not even allergies, sensitivities. And I don't really remember her details, but she basically just like helped her parents run their farm to table bed and breakfast. (laughs) And even though I, you know, was historically bored with Kirsten's historical accessories, I think I suddenly felt defensive of her plight because she had it so tough. And this 2019 doll just did not get it. Out on the frontier was bed or breakfast, like pick one, bed and breakfast. Never. She was always cold and she was always hungry and rarely were both problems solved at once. And farm to table. I think we talked about it. it was just a chic rebrand of Molly's harrowing experience with Victory Garden to table dining. She had to eat turnips. War rations. I mean, these girls did not have the luxury to opt in to farm to table dining. In their day, it was garden or die. And then in a strange move, I can only blame on the pandemic that I'm not sure if it's r- regrettable or perhaps my magnum opus. I, in 2020, did a stop motion video of the American Girl Dolls doing the WAP dance for a virtual live show uh, because my childhood friend generously donated Samantha and Felicity to the cause. And yeah, I went out on a limb attempting TikTok choreography. And unfortunately, Samantha lost one of hers in the process. I should have known better than to do such harsh splits with 30-year-old dolls. But I was too lost in my process to worry about it. I created a full-on doll hype house and reenacted various TikTok trends. At one point, putting doll wigs on them and pretending they went to hair by Chrissy. <laughs> I mean, what? Feels like a fever dream. You should have known from Childless Millennial in late 2020, I wasn't well. I was probably just avoiding the conversation of having kids and telling my husband I was like slammed at work. Meanwhile, he could probably see me out of the corner of his eye filming Felicity riding a Roomba drinking cranberry juice to a Fleetwood Mac song. Uh, And I'm sure he thought, wow, future mother of my children. And then in October 2021, we did a two-part deep dive. If you are into the American Girl Dolls and you're new here, one's called Grand Mary, Did You Know? And sorry, I'm laughing at my own titles. I'm insufferable. I love the name Grand Mary and I love the song Mary, Did You Know? So what are you going to do? And then one is American Girl, Wash Your Face. And in the second one, I read listener stories about your experiences with the American Girl dolls. And I loved this episode and I think about them often. I often think about um, the girl who wanted a doll so badly that could only get her hands on Coconut the dog. And when she would like take it in her basement and tuck it in and try to cuddle it. But like it was as hard as a Coconut the fruit. Why American Girl made their dolls soft bodied yet their pets a 10 on the Mo scale like we'll never know. Um, And I think she brought Coconut to a track five. Uh, And what an honor it was to meet him slash her. As we know, the backstory and gender of Coconut remains unclear because they were released as a girl, a boy in 2000 and then a girl in 2001. Not sure which one she had. I often think of the girl who who bought what she thought were like unbranded vintage winter boots. She bought them at like a thrift store in France and then realized upon viewing my Instagram story that the whole time she had in fact been sporting the boots from the dress like your doll section of the American Girl catalog. And something about seeing an item from dress like your doll in the wild is so delightful to me. And the person being like, oh, it's vintage. And me being like, is it? Like, what? Pretty sure that's uh, Kirsten Larson's Scandinavian winter story. But I feel like by the time we got into nap dresses, like it was all the same. That was effectively dressing like your doll. It'd be on a brunch patio. And yeah, it's like, is that? Kirsten Summer Striper 99 or Hill House Home. Hard to say. 
I just think there's something so sweet about how vividly many of us recall our, our days with our dolls. And this book, Dolls of Our Lives, captures a lot of why they're so incredibly special to so many people and also participates in my favorite pastime, which is both celebrating and criticizing the media and icons we grew up with. And not to like unfairly force them to exist in an era they weren't made for, but as Allison says in this episode, to be an adult fan, it requires putting an adult lens to these things. And um, I write about them a bit in my book, too, because I feel a lot of ways about this brand. But ultimately, I think that they're really important because to take a doll that, in the context of a baby doll, represents a toy that once embodied the options women were limited to. I mean, having to use their imaginative childhood years effectively cosplaying their inevitable role as caretakers um, and use dolls to tell stories of young women who, as a result of those same limitations on women in their time, likely have stories that have been erased from history. And rather than just serve as like a shell of a doll to dress up and play with. They also had books that were actually good with like really beautiful illustrations and real stories of hardship and friendship and triumph. And as we've talked about before, like even though they were dealing with things, serious traumatizing things, slavery, being an orphan, experiencing xenophobia and during world wars, like somehow those hardships didn't define them as much as they contextualized them. And in the process, these dolls were sneakily teaching us history and, more importantly, humanity and how we process others' suffering by sharing our country's past through the eyes of a peer that we could understand and respect and be compassionate toward. And this book goes into so much interesting background and has endless fun and funny pop culture references and, I mean, some hot takes. The, the hosts self-identify as Molly's, both of them. And in the book, they said, and I quote, perhaps the most vocal community of fans who identify with an American girl doll are Kirsten's. We're afraid to even write about them for fear of lawsuits or that they, like their namesake, will make us take shelter with them in a cave with a dead body, let a raccoon into the house who will ultimately burn it down or force us to participate in a barn raising. And, you know, I guess I didn't know that self-identified Kirsten's were so vocal, so feared. I've spent my entire life being afraid of Samantha's. I thought as a Kirsten I was an underdog. But I guess one person's cottagecore queen is another Scandinavian bully. I guess she does look ready to curb stomp you with those tennis racket snowshoes. I don't know. She has a Christmas crown of flames. It's pretty intimidating. I mean, to their point, Kirsten was so reckless. I So, yeah, Kirsten burned down her her family's cabin in the dead of winter when they had no money or shelter or anything due to a rogue raccoon that, you know, made for some unpleasant company when it knocked over an oil lamp. But I totally forgot how her and her brother, named Lars Larson, one of my favorite names ever, went looking for like animals to skin so they could sell pelts and buy a cabin after Kirsten burnt down their cabin because of the raccoon. And then they like went to some guy's cave who had a lot of fur pelts. And when they got there, he was dead. But it was so cold that they slept there with the dead body. And then the next day, took his belts to sell. Kind of rude. But yeah, Lars Larson was kind of a smoke show. If we're smashing or passing American boys, Lars Larson, smash. Felicity's friend Ben, you know, as an adult, smash. Uncle Guard, smash. <laughs> Jiggy Nye, hard pass. Mm, who else is there? James McIntyre. Thank you for your service. Mm, but I shall pass. I need to be stopped. This is such a bad one-take intro about a topic I really care about 
but I'm racing because um, it's Saturday and I know my minutes are numbered until the baby is screaming. If working is the oil lamp and Teddy is the raccoon, you know, it just takes one little nudge of nothing to light the whole thing on fire. <laughs> my work date's done. <laughs> so please forgive me. I hope you enjoy the episode. I will be on their podcast, All of Our Lives, I think when, like during my book's press cycle, uh, probably in a month or two. Thanks to Mary and Allison for coming on the pod, and I will catch you on the flip side. This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. We've come a long way since the Minnesota frontier when things were more manual. And ButcherBox is the easiest way to find high-quality meat and seafood you can trust. I always feel confused at the grocery store with labels like grass-fed and free-range and if I can trust their standards. And there's such a high markup, but ButcherBox offers at an incredible value, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood, among other products that are all humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, very conveniently delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. My family's coming to watch the babe while I go out of town for a bit, and babysitters used to, like, leave money for pizza. And I'm like, you know what? My money for pizza is there's meat in the freezer. I, I am thrilled to offer them such a cornucopia of high-quality cuts of meat. It's so convenient to be hosting during holiday season, and I feel less stressed having a freezer full of protein. And ButcherBox has all you need for a tasty, stress-free holiday season. And also, I love seeing what deals they come up with. And this is their best deal of the year. For the first time, customers can choose which steak they get free for a year. If you've got a lot of mouths to feed this holiday season, if you want a stockpile for winter, if you want to give a great gift to somebody who you want to always have food on hand, I can't recommend ButcherBox enough. And this Black Friday, your search for amazing deals on high-quality protein ends with ButcherBox. They're offering their best deal of the year. Choose your free steak for a year. Choose between two New York strip steaks, filet mignons, or ribeyes to get free in every box for a whole year when you join. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash be there in five and use code be there in five to choose your free steak for a year and get $20 off. That's butcherbox.com slash be there in five and use code be there in five to get this special Black Friday deal plus $20 off. All right, you guys, today I'm joined by Allison Horrocks and Mary Mahoney, two friends and colleagues and now authors who are, to use their words, two historians who abandon academia to make a doll podcast, which is the ideal intersection and juxtaposition of the seemingly deep and shallow that we love to explore on this podcast. Their podcast, Dolls of Our Lives, dives into an American Girl book each episode, using their knowledge as professional historians and finely tuned instincts as amateur pop culture critics to take you back to a different time, the 1990s. The success of their podcast led them to write their namesake book, Dolls of Our Lives, which at the time of listening to this is out now. It combines history, travelogue, and memoir, and it follows Allison and Mary on an unforgettable journey to the past as they delve into the origins of this iconic brand. Continuing the conversations that began on their podcast, they set out to answer the lingering questions that keep them up at night, and today they'll answer the lingering questions that keep me up at night about this brand. Please welcome to the Be There in Five podcast, Allison and Mary. Hello. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for joining. So just even for people, uh, in case they don't know, your podcast... Was your podcast originally called American Girls? That's right. Yep. It was originally called American Girls. And then for reasons we cannot get into, we had to change the oh. name to Dolls of Our Lives, which was actually suggested by our listeners, which, you know, we're happy about. It's nice to have a title that's, you know, thought of by us. I didn't know the co the context of the rebrand, but I got to say, I love it. And even when I was titling this session, I was abbreviating it with dual. I thought of friends. I'm like, <laughs> You also get the dual edit. That's amazing. <laughs> so I know how you guys feel about this because I read your book, but I self-identify as a reluctant Kirsten. 
Um, oh. You two both describe yourselves as Mollies. Can care to elaborate? I'll let Allison go first on this one. It's a <laughs> deeply held feeling. <laughs> you don't have to be, you know, reluctant about being a Kirsten, but I think we both first got Molly, which doesn't mean that you have to be a Molly. But in both of our cases, it just kind of felt right. And we've had a connection to Molly now for over 25 years, which is sort of scary to say out loud. But Molly still, I don't know if she's always my favorite character, but she's the one that feels right to me. So that's that's as good as you can really get in the American girl world. That's definitely true. I mean, some people describe it almost like that psychotic like mapping that happens in Twilight where like people map onto their partners when they first see them or something. I don't oh, know. Oh, yes. Imprinting. I didn't get that. <laughs> Thank you. Imprinting. Yes. <laughs> where it's kind of like it, you may not identify as a Molly by in terms of her like demographic info, but, you know, it might be something as simple as you have glasses, she has glasses, something yeah. like that. But seemingly the first doll that imprinted on you as a child seems to be the one that really stays with people, even as Allison and I have learned, you know, reading the books on our show that we came out after we kind of aged out of it, that we certainly love a lot of other characters, but we keep coming back to Molly. That's a really great way of framing it, because I always go back to Kirsten because I, I know the most about her backstory because she was the doll I had. And I often wonder, because I didn't have the experience of picking out a doll. I don't know about you guys, but Mine was a gift and it's people kind of come into it one of two ways. It's like the doll that looks the most like them, which we know has its limitations based on what they chose to show American girls looked like at first or picking one with a backstory you identify with. Do you in your research, have you found people tend to have done one or the other when they could pick the doll themselves? If it's more about like their appearance and their accessories or like their historical backstory? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of both of those things. So I think when I, like you, got it as a gift, I got my Molly when I was on Christmas Eve for my grandmother. And so, you know, Molly chose me in a sense. I didn't choose Molly. But I think totally. for a lot of listeners or, or fans from different backgrounds, you know, if you grow up, you know, black and your family gives you an Addy, like that's a really loaded choice for you to make for yourself or your for your family to make for you. Um, mm. which people have complicated feelings about that obviously we can't relate to as part of that conversation. But I think if you choose, pe for people who choose their own characters, it seems to be something in the stories that really resonates with them, whether it's, you know, shared background or just maybe even character traits that they feel an affinity with. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good point. And I, early on, you have a quote that I think is really, really beautiful. You say, so much of it is hard to explain to a newbie. How can you tell a stranger that imagining you two lived in on the prairie in 1854 helped you navigate life as a nine-year-old in the 1990s? And you say, we met when we met as adults, just talking about these things instantly brought us closer and was important in our friendship. The relationship between these imaginary girls and our gr girlhoods felt so vital and obvious to people who'd lived it, but it was harder to explain to people who hadn't. And I have to say, like, I've podcasted for six years, and of all the pop culture, like, millennial zeitgeisty topics I bring up, something about American Girl... It brings people out of the woodwork. It, the engagement is wild. Like, I've done two episodes ever on it, but like, I feel like that's the thing people hold on to the most. And I mean, even high level, what do you think it is about American Girl that makes us still want to be talking about them to this day? And maybe like over the course of writing the book, did your opinion on that X factor change for like why it worked? Those are great questions. You know, I think to your first point, I think why it resonates so much 
from our perspective, or at least from my perspective, is that the things from girlhood really remind you or take you back to such a vulnerable place, at least for me. You know, like I can remember being nine years old and trying to figure out who I wanted to be and all of those things and things that take me back to that time and that were a kind of currency or language for how I was navigating that at that time. You know, could I be a Molly? Did it make me feel more courageous to pretend to be this other person that I thought was cool? You know, I think Mm -hmm. it just still resonates. And I think for adults looking back on it or kind of engaging in nostalgia for it, I think there's a kind of yearning for the friendship you see in the books. Um, I think friendship is still such an important topic, even in our adult lives. And also this idea of like wanting to figure ourselves out, wanting to keep creating ourselves. That's not a process that ends when you reach adulthood, as I think we've learned. You don't stop asking, what do I want to be when I grow up? Like you're still trying to figure that out. And I think those books offer a really helpful entry point to think about. Absolutely. Was there anything? So I actually, in my cursory research for about American Girl for episodes I did in the past, I actually felt like I couldn't really find out that much about Pleasant Rowland and like the origin story that wasn't in just like a few random articles from the 90s. But you Mm. really go into history of Pleasant. And I, I loved this line. Um, you said, if we didn't actually want to meet Pleasant because it's too real for us, and we're not sure she'd understand our desire to compare Felicity's gender politics to Britney Spears' toxic. And, like, <laughs> I understand that desire so deeply. Because I do think that these girls were, like, a point of... I think anything you play with, it's, like, a point of entry for how you, like, perceive the world and what you project out onto what their lives are like. And I think that so much of the things we picked up on during that play stays with you for better or for worse. So what do you think that Pleasant Roland was attempting to do with these dolls? Yeah, I mean, what's great about her is she's pretty upfront about what she doesn't want it to be, right? She doesn't want it to be like Barbie. She doesn't want it to be like brands that she thinks are kind of like forcing girls or people to grow up too fast. She wants it to represent something different and have great connections to historic sites. You know, something that I think about a lot is it was never easy to get American Girl stuff. Like, this is probably the easiest it's ever been because you can place orders on the Internet. You can go to thrift shops. You can connect with people. The first time that this product came out, she made it feel exclusive because it was catalog order only. You always, you know, pretty much like had to have help with getting the product. It wasn't the easiest thing. And that was absolutely intentional on her part that you couldn't go to uh, KB Toys or just any store in the mall and pick up an American Girl product. I never thought about it that way, but yeah, that w- what if what an early touch point with um, like scarcity marketing. <laughs> yeah, and I think an important piece of her backstory that you can really see in the marketing of American Girl at the beginning is you know looking at the interviews from the seventies where she's a TV anchor, which we didn't know that she actually in her very diverse career path was a TV anchor at some point. And she gives comments about the feminist movement in the 1970s in Vietnam and this era where people are really disenchanted with a sense of, you know, American patriotism of what is the difference between right and wrong when Watergate's happening and things are, are feeling very complicated. And then by the 80s, you have this turn by some conservatives to really push towards, you know, make America great again with Reagan and a push towards patriotism and kind of enforcing a morality to like air quotes, make things safe for kids. So you have like the D.A.R.E. program jumping off and all these other things. 
And I think you can sort of see Pleasant within that world trying to market something that she thinks will not only put girls at the center of the story, but also, you know, kind of instill in them a basic sense of patriotism, of right versus wrong, and of, you know, feeling empowered in themselves. It was so interesting hearing about the news anchor and even like you guys quoting the articles about how, like talking about her career, the the journalist would talk about like her femme face, blue eyes, the slightly protruding upper teeth that gave a girl a sexy look. I'm like, wait, what? it's like it's, truly it's nuts crazy. that people were like, oh, we need to talk about the sexiness of her teeth for you to understand her business acumen. Like if you think about top, you know, male businessmen today, like a Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, no one would think at all, you know, in a good way to speak about their physical appearance as an essential way of understanding their professional success. And yet you see it time and again in this period as she's navigating, you know, she's successful in multiple career paths. It's really incredible. But in all of them, a through line is people objectifying her physical appearance in pursuit of trying to understand this bigger thing about her life. Yeah, it's like you know that that went on, but when you actually read examples of it and think of how horrified you would be in a modern context, it's just it's interesting to think of women like her who just like had to accept it for what it was and power through anyway. Yeah. And even her saying about the feminist movement, you know, I agree with the general goals of the movement. I believe that women should be paid equally with men, but I disagree with the movement, you know, removing basic femininity from women like I, they lose my support when they bang their fist on the table and like wear combat boots. And it's like, well, pleasant. What are you talking about? But also like there's something in her that's sort of like an internalized like we must remain feminine or no one will respect us like her. Her own understanding of womanhood is really interesting. And I think you can yes. kind of see that in the dolls as well and in the characters that she creates. Oh, totally. When I was reading some of the quotes from Pleasant, I'd be like, hell yeah. And I'd be like, ooh. <laughs> Wait a <laughs> second. Yeah. <laughs> like you're so with her. And then she says something else. And you're like, ooh, pushed it too far. It's sort of like hearing your aunt at Thanksgiving where she's like going off on something political. And you're like, I'm so with you. And then they take it like one step too far and you're like, well, oh, wait a second. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Let's, like, let's hit pause on this. But we talk about this a lot, too, in the past, like thinking about the 90s moment of like girl power. And like Allison and I've talked a lot about like the Spice Girls standing in that moment, too, and like kind of representing a lot of the same complicated politics where you're like, I'm so with the Spice Girls. I'm still with them. You know, they made a great movie. So many great, such great music. Still support them 110 percent. And yet, like much of their feminism is about like motivating you to buy things. It's not necessarily about kind of the intersectional feminism that, you know, we might advocate for today. Oh, man, that's like a huge part of my book is kind of that realization that like all girl power was empowering you to do was consume. Yeah. And you quote Toni Morrison in your book about her saying like there was a shift after the 1950s where we were once referred to as citizens and then we were now referred to as consumers. It is so interesting to think about how recent that history is of, and how we're kind of figuring out like what it means to be raised predominantly as a consumer. Um, Absolutely. And I think that it was particularly pervasive in the 90s, uh, especially with like these toys and stuff. But also what, what I OK, this was I probably spent like a good four hours combing through this colonial Williamsburg chapter. I'm from <laughs> Richmond, Virginia, uh -oh. and my mom's a U.S. history enthusiast. My Dad's a William and Mary grad. Um, oh, Williams Williamsburg is like part of my DNA. We went there constantly, and it's. I mean, it's on the one hand I feel fondly like it's not everywhere you can shop to drop at the outlets. Then like 
decompressed hearing a fife and drum corps. That's right. Um, but also, as I think many of us have deconstructed our learning about U.S. history, it's kind of like, wait. Anyways, can you explain how the, the origin story of American Girl is so closely tied to Williamsburg, why you went there and like what you found out? Allison, do you want to take this? I feel like I'm talking so much. I feel bad. So we went to Williamsburg mostly because that is like kind of in the origin story of American Girl. Like that's where she got the big idea that she was on vacation and had this inspiration to create something really different. I think it was also helpful to just think about a place that pretty famously in American Girl fandom, it's one of the sites that you could go to to see other people carrying usually Felicity dolls around. Like you could see other people like Mm -hmm. you and kind of get excited about that. And knowing that people who worked at Colonial Williamsburg had a really big role in the creation of characters. If you know, like the first three characters, none of them are revolutionary. They're actually all set in later, like significantly later time periods. And then it's in the 1990s that Pleasant Company circles back and creates a Felicity doll. But really, like the DNA of American Girl is all tied up in Colonial Williamsburg. And as kind of a teaser for a special episode we're doing, there's arguably um, that is literally true as well, somewhat alleged. So I'll just leave that there. <laughs> but um, yes. there is a, a quite literal origin story that some have connected to Colonial Williamsburg and the company. But there is a very well-known origin story that she was traveling around. She's very excited about Williamsburg. And, and that's where the company comes from. She and to just add on to that a little bit, like what she found there was people telling the story about past to make people care about it by basing it on individual people's stories who lived in the time and also objects from the time. So you could go and like actually see a blacksmith making stuff or like we went and saw a bookmaking place because I make books in my free time because I'm kind of a nerd like. So it was like seeing this happen. You're like, wow, I'm seeing people do these crafts, these trades. And she really put these two things together as the magic of this place, like getting people to understand the past through individual real people's stories and also seeing the stuff of the past. So by making a doll and creating an individual story around her, setting her in a real time period in American history and also creating like accessories that you could play with, you could actually get girls to understand the story of American history while also normalizing having girls at the center of the story. And that's a huge innovation. It's really worth noting that that's like, and she conceived of these two things together, the dolls and the book. She didn't conceive of them separately. They had to come together. So she really thought of each serving the other. And it's interesting, like speaking about like Americans as consumers, that she comes up with this idea at a living history museum, which feels kind of like a mall at times. Like you can buy things everywhere, as you probably know. And then also by literally going to a mall and being outraged at a Toys R Us at what she could find for her then niece, her young niece. Oh, right. Because she could only find Cabbage Patch dolls and Barbies. Is that right? She thought they were ugly, Cabbage Patch dolls, which like that hurts me to my core because I loved my Cabbage Patch doll. (laughs) But she thought they were ugly. She thought Teddy Ruxpin was insane. Like she thought like it was offensive. The neon lights of Toys R Us were quote offensive to her. And Barbie was objectifying girls. And and notably, Barbie is all about professions. Barbie's an adult. She's like the ultimate multi-hyphenate. And she wanted something that was for girls that would encourage them to stay girls as long as they could, to not grow up too soon. There was so much interesting background about the brand, even not only why they were nine years old, um, but also even like I didn't, I don't think I knew that they were soft bodied on purpose to be like, 
huggable, which was interesting to me because on the one hand, it stood out to me that she said, I think at one point you quote Pleasant saying that she wanted the dolls to be played with by girls and then like passed down to their daughters, which like, LOL, she thought we wouldn't like cut their hair. So that would suggest they were like meant to be kind of kept pristine. But the huggable nature of it kind of suggests they were meant to be like worn in and and loved. Did you ever unbraid your Kirsten's hair with that in mind? Uh, The day I got her. (gasps) Yeah. That was always my biggest fear. Never mind hugging them. I was like, I cannot remake those braids. I got mine when I was so young. I was like, I think I was five and I was so excited. And and I got it on Kirsten before going home for from Ohio. I was at my grandpa's house um, on like an eight or nine hour car ride. And I took those braids out. I mean, you know, faster than Marta died on that riverboat in the first book. Like I was, it was, oh my and God. I immediately regretted it because I think I saw my mom's reaction, like holy oh. depreciation. Like, <laughs> I think you kind of want, it's kind of like keeping Barbies in the plastic. My instinct was like, oh my God, crimped hair. Crimped hair was the thing. Right. But then realized, right. oh, my God, no, keeping it pristine is the thing. Totally understand. Yep. So you guys didn't take wow. Molly's braids out? I was too terrified. Like, I can't braid human hair at that stage. <laughs> or even like now I can do a basic braid. That's it. So I was like, I can't unring that bell once I do that. So I knew that about myself. But Allison, were you that brave? Oh, I did. Yeah, I did. Oh. My Molly that I got for the 35th reboot, her hair is in the braids like created by the company just because I barely touch her. She's like a model. But the one I got when I was eight, her braids definitely came out. She has braids in today that were done by a professional at the store. So I've kind of just left those like because they look really good. Before, if, if you both had left her braids and initially I was going to ask myself if there was like a Myers-Briggs-esque mapping where <laughs> a Molly would not undo braids and a Kirsten would because Kirsten is reckless in the way that she burnt down her family's cabin with a raccoon, as we know. That's undoubtedly true. Yes. <laughs> so did I understand correctly that there was kind of not not a contentious history, but at one point, Pleasant and Colonial Williamsburg, like the Enterprise, mm-hmm. were working together in developing right. Felicity, but at some point they separated Yeah, so in 1990, or maybe a little bit earlier, Pleasant approaches Colonial Williamsburg, the museum, and says, hey, um, at this point, she has three dolls, Samantha, Kirsten, Molly, that um, launched in 1986. You know, it's it's very successful almost immediately. And she comes to them and says, hey, look, I have these three successful dolls. I want to create a doll based in Colonial Williamsburg, and I want to make it make sure it's historically accurate. And I want to work with your researchers and your team. And they're like, that's great. Come on in. And the director um, matches her with Mary Wiseman, who is living legend to us. She's um, interviewed in chapter two of our book. She is, oh my God, this woman is on a permanent living spree. She doesn't do email. She lives like it's 18th century. She created the Living History Program at Williamsburg, which is where people do so much research that they can sort of embody a person from the period Mm. and answer a lot of questions about it. She has really deep knowledge of the period. And so she was running a program where she was teaching young girls etiquette. And the character of Miss Manderley in the Felicity books is based directly on her. She even created that name for herself. So um, Valerie Tripp actually comes to Williamsburg with Pleasant. 
they're exchanging email, like they're exchanging like research ideas, checking in on stuff. They work very closely together. The launch takes place at Williamsburg for Felicity. And then after a few years time, somebody at Williamsburg says, hey, basically American Girl is using us for a lot of free promo. We're not getting anything out of this. Let's just separate from American Girl. And so they actually end up doing this with much to Mary's regret because she really loves Pleasant. Um, and I would argue they did get a lot out of it because people were bringing Felicity there and Felicity was driving probably people to go to the yeah. museum. Um, so that never made sense to me. It doesn't make sense to the other Mary um, either. But they actually, when we were there, were selling two dolls based on real girls from the period with their own books. So they essentially what they've done now is like directly copy American Girl's model with their own characters. It's it's insane. That's like offensive. Yes. <laughs> it's so offensive. I'm mad that they even thought it was that easy, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of like that's not the like that's not it. And also the fact that Felicity is not based on a real person allows Valerie Tripp the freedom to like truly go off in those books. And she does in terms of plot lines. <laughs> um, so I haven't read these books, but I imagine it must be hard to actually write a kind of charismatic story in the same way that the American Girl books are because they're really limited to the facts of that person's life. And I'm not saying mm. I'm rooting against museum because I'm in favor of this museum. We loved our time there. But I think it's it's really erasing the magic of American Girl and what that meant for so many people to, to be able to associate it with that place. A lot of people, I think, go to that museum be and think about Felicity who are of a certain age. So... It just feels very short-sighted to me. And again, like you're a marketing, you're a marketing person. We are not, but it feels like that was a mistake. Oh my God, a huge mistake. It and it's just so interesting too because Colonial Williamsburg has dumped so much money into like the tourism marketing in recent years and like sending bloggers there. And like, I don't know. I feel like they maybe only recently abandoned their like obsession with historical integrity to like make it seem fun too. <laughs> because yeah. I, I, as a non-historian going there, not going to lie. Sometimes I was like, mom, I cannot go to another blacksmith demonstration. Like I, we feel, you know, you. I and get it. Every, I don't know where you guys grew up, but like every field trip was like cosplaying. Yeah. Pioneers turning butter, making <laughs> candles. It was kind of this, the, this format of living history museums and learning through activities. But it is kind of an amazing feat to get somebody like me who was like playing dream phone and watching Saved by the Bell interested in, um, you know, crocheting a quilt with a muslin border. <laughs> that was not something I would normally be caught doing when I was a young, shallow gal who just wanted to be limited to. I feel that. But I mean, like, what if Kelly Kapowski needed you to crochet an outfit for the prom that year that she couldn't afford to go because her dad got laid off? I know. It was hard seeing Kelly have issues with money when Lisa <laughs> Turtle could just shop till she dropped. She was never balling on a budget. I mean, she was constantly <laughs> flexing. That that was difficult. That's like one of my favorite all-time episodes of Saved by the Bell. My gosh, I could do a podcast. Just about I've never been able to talk to people about Saved by the Bell, but like it was so important to how I thought high school Americana would look and what my experience would be. Yes. I was just having a conversation about this with someone and basically saying that like Saturday morning TV gave me a completely false idea of what high school would be like when I was younger. Yeah. So like Saved by the Bell and um, uh, California Dreamin' and Hoop Dreams, which was about the girl who played on the boys basketball team. 
And I don't know if you ever watched that one. Um, and Sweet Valley High, of course. Yep. And all of those things together, I was like, high school is going to be amazing. Like in Saved by the Bell, like you, they get to be part of a girl group. Um, they're in a band at one point. They're doing all kinds of stuff. Zap, Zach can stop time. Like there's so many things where I'm like, wow, it's all going to happen for me. And then it's like, that's not what it was for me. <laughs> I mean, even I think I was influenced to work at a country club because of Malibu Sands and you know, country club is not as fun as they wow. Made it wow. Well, did you like Leah Remini grow up to try to take down Scientology? Because that would be worth it. I mean, when I think of how long I've been following Leah Remini's career since Malibu Sands, I mean, yes, always been doing good work, except for the time she was in Scientology. That part <laughs> was bad. Her book is genuinely very good. And I, I'll said it before yeah. and I've said it again. Like, I will be at her profile and courage award ceremony when she does get the recognition she deserves for taking down Scientology. She really does deserve more. And yeah, I mean, we'll get too far, of course, if we talk about the Shelley of it all. But like, I think we yeah. all demand answers and we're just not going to get them. I bet Allison has more information. Allison's more tuned into like true crime conversations. So I think she probably is more up to date on like recent information. But we know she's out there. Like we know there, there's more information that we're not being told. I am not talking about Scientology on your high profile podcast. I'm not involved to my life. There's no way. Why? They find you and they never let go. There's no way. Okay. I'm not there's afraid no way. of them. It's okay. See, I know enough to know to not. Like Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's funny because one of my earliest podcast episodes I brought up Scientology and then I deleted it because I heard that they'll like show up outside your house with a white van and what? I didn't even mention it. I was giving myself a lot of credit as a fledgling podcaster that Scientology was oh, tuned wow. in to episode three of <laughs> Be There in Five. <laughs> maybe they were. Honestly, maybe they were. Sorry. This po- this is a podcast built on tangents. We welcome okay. them. We embrace them. And Allison just scared me enough to... I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I spent the majority of this year not able to do my skincare routine because most of it wasn't pregnancy safe. So I've been scrambling to figure out how to support my skin in these trying times. And I'm not blowing smoke when I say that Hyacera from Ritual, a once-daily supplement designed to promote skin support from within, I feel like it's brought me back to life. I learned via Ritual that there's a gradual loss of hyaluronic acid in the skin as we age. And over time, the skin becomes thinner, drier, cute, and, you know, more prone to fine lines, which is okay to age as a gift, but to have spent my youth in a tanning bed was not. So I'm forever trying to reduce wrinkles and fine lines. And Hyacera is a once-daily skin support supplement with two clinically proven ingredients, Ceratique and Hyabest. In a clinical study done by an independent research lab, Ceratique proved to help reduce fine lines in 90 days. In a clinical study done by the supplier, Hyabest significantly improved skin luster and suppleness compared to the baseline. You know, I was going to say my skin looks more supple, but I don't like the word supple, and I didn't know if that's what this product was designed to do, but yes, I do feel that way. Enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule with a soothing vanilla scent. That's like one of my favorite parts about Ritual is how gentle their supplements are and they have like an amazing scent slash aftertaste. And Ritual, as we know, is made traceable. They have a transparent supply chain. This is an unregulated category, but they are very committed to being transparent about where their products come from. And they are third party tested for heavy metals and microbes. And if you want to reduce wrinkles without compromising on clean science, Hyacera from Ritual is a skin supplement you can actually trust. Ritual is offering my listeners 30% off during your first month. Visit ritual.com slash be there in five to start Ritual or add Hyacera to your lineup today. 
Back in my American Girl days, I was like, you know, crocheting quilts from the Revolutionary War era for sport because I had time to kill to be making my gifts. But come holiday season, I often panic because I don't have time to do the customization I once could. And Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Literally, they have so many customizable gifts and they have so many gifts in like niche hobbies and categories that are the best kind of gift where you see it and you think, that's so my mom, that's so my husband, that's so my nephew. And the site is so well organized. Gifts for mom, for dad, him, her, for teens, for kids. Like, I don't know if I should be getting a 13-year-old a choo-choo train or like what the vibe is. It helps separate by recipient or by like interest if you're an avid reader. Like one of their best-selling items, it's so cute that I want so bad is called a book nook. And it it's a reading valet made out of this beautiful wood that like holds a cup of coffee, holds a pair of glasses or your phone or whatever. And you display your book and it keeps your spot while also displaying a beautiful cover, which is just like a beautiful built-in room accessory. I also don't really relate to tea drinkers, but they have a 24 days of tea advent calendar that is incredibly popular that I'm interested in. And I think last week I tried to hard sell you on the pistachio pedestal that Caroline Moss, who shops for a living, told me is like one of her biggest selling holiday items, a gorgeous wood, kind of like bowl type thing for nuts, where you discard your shells on the bottom so you can separate the shells. I wish they have the same for edamame. And what I love is when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. Their products are often made in small batches, hence why I'm telling you now to shop before they sell out. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique and often handmade or made in the U.S. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. And they have virtual classes too, which are unexpected opportunities to have fun and connect in new ways from tarot card reading, romantic map making, cooking and mixology classes and more. Much better than your sketchy Groupons of yesteryear. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back a dollar to a nonprofit partner of your choice, which is so cool. They've donated more than two and a half million dollars to date. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash be there in five. That's uncommongoods.com slash be there in five for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. What One thing I loved about the book, too, is that it, it's in six chapters that mirror the arc of the traditional six book American Girl arc, which are what? Will you tell me them in order? Uh-oh. Starts with a meat bug, and then meat, the person yeah. learns a lesson, and then they have a surprise, which usually means surprise, it's a holiday, you get a doll, and then they have a <laughs> birthday where they turn 10. And the next book, they save the day, and then they go through a changes. And every book has a peek into the past. So my favorite, you have a whole, I don't want to like spoil the book by reading too much, too many quotes, but I copied so many because I love so many parts of this. And you dive into like the saves the day books, for example. My, my personal favorite, and I think a lot of people's honestly, was Molly. Um, Molly saves the day. And I found my original. <laughs> oh, and it's cute because it my sister <laughs> It's Kelly's sleepover, ninth birthday, 92, and all of her friends signed oh, it. Oh, Isn't that cute? Oh, my God. That's adorable. <laughs> anyway, and I also was laughing because, like, what a loser. I filled out all the business reply things at the end. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. Ne- never were never to be sent in because I'm sure my mom was like, no more catalogs. <laughs> supposed to be Every parent's wish. Yes. So, okay, before even getting to the books... When I was doing the process of revisiting my fandom, because I was a super fan, and the things I remember the most are like pouring over the catalogs, obsessing over the furniture and the clothes. And I loved a lot of the books, but I really do uh, remember the consumerism part the most. And 
I think only in retrospect did I kind of appreciate and acknowledge that through participating in the consumerism, I was like kind of sneakily learning history, actually in a more arguably realistic way than I was taught in history classes, to your point in Williamsburg about not using real characters, but using these fictional girls that served as peers. I actually think I learned more about the realities of slavery, for example, and told through the eyes of a peer who I had compassion and empathy for, I think I almost absorbed it more because I wasn't objectively reading about people through the lens of like a textbook or it wasn't it couldn't be glossed over. Early on in the book, you mentioned the um, Addie, meet Addie and the worm anecdote I've talked about on the podcast before that like, I mean, I, I, I was so horrified as a young girl reading that because I hadn't been told stories like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think like so many so much of the brand is pitched at middle class white girls to be candid, like especially in the early years. And with that in mind, I think if you were a white girl of a certain age, like that might be your first introduction to the history of slavery. It definitely was for me. I had not read a history of slavery before I read the Addie books. And it was really chilling to have it humanized with someone my age experiencing such real trauma. I mean, I remember going to school and I was reading book one at night with my mom and being at school thinking like, oh my God, or like Addie and her mom going to be okay? Like what's going yeah. on? And that worm anecdote, like it's in the book, it stayed with me. And I think it's something that's so powerful because it touches you emotionally and then hopefully inspires you to go out and keep reading and, and read other things to learn about that part of our shared past. It's something that's so ahead of, you know, what most people were learning at the time. I would always say as a kid that Abraham Lincoln was my hero because I went to the National Lincoln National Memorial and I was told, and I remember this very vividly, that he freed X number of people. And I thought, well, it's like pretty hard to top that, right? Like that that's someone that's, you know, worthy of our admiration. And reading the Addie book, she frees herself. And now all the contemporary cutting edge scholarship, that's the emphasis, right? That the biggest labor movement of the 19th century is millions of people freeing themselves from forced labor. And as an eight or a nine-year-old, you were given that, not in those words, with the fact that that entire family liberates themselves and joins a community of free people who are part of freeing others you know, from their background or from their community. And that's something that in scholarship was not accepted for a long time as kind of the prevailing idea. Yet if you read Addie, that's what you were taught. I appreciated how much research you did interviewing other people, because I think when talking about Addie, I think we're all conscious of like not wanting to center our opinions. But at, at the same time, I do think there there was such value in people outside of, you know, whatever doll it was, historically excluded groups that they chose to feature, like actually uh, learning the real stories of these people. Like when I went back and thought about it, I realized that in history class, to your point, I when I only learned like the slaves were freed, Emancipation Proclamation, the end. But the walkers, like that was a longer story of what it actually looked like to assimilate back into society and how it was made incredibly difficult at every turn. And like, I, I yeah, I did not learn that in history class. I don't think you're so, alone on that either. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, that, I that's what I really appreciated about your book is I think that with um, pop cultural universes like this, you want to celebrate, of course, but it's also absolutely fair to criticize. And I think your love for it is shown through asking some of the tougher questions. OK, you you have this anecdote where. Um, oh, God, what was it? It was somebody like tweets about soup. About the potato soup. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah, she learned that her favorite soup is actually a soup from an American Girl recipe book, that it's actually Kirsten's potato soup. <laughs> Which I, I'm obsessed like, learned with. This cherished family memory uh, was actually from from that book. And, and her mother sort of cro- ends up corroborating that, that that's where they got this like beloved recipe. That is amazing. And it reminds me of a time that um, I was talking about American Girl on Instagram. I showed a page of the catalog. And somebody DM me saying, oh, my God, they were it was a page of Kirsten's winter outfit. And to dress like her, you could get these like faux fur boots that were really, really nice. And this girl's like, oh, my God, I just picked those up at a thrift store. I thought they were (laughs) some high end vintage faux fur boot. I've been wearing them (laughs) everywhere. And I didn't. And I was like, I would die to see somebody earnestly dressed like their doll in modern yes. and not realize it <laughs> oh my god like somebody has samantha's cape which i always wanted and they're like yeah oh. this is not a big deal but it's kind of chic it's kind of rare picked it up at a thrift store you wouldn't understand and it's like samantha's cape well i've always been like i don't know if it was the best idea samantha to like go to the orphanage wearing your nicest fur muffin hat <laughs> maybe pick a more understated outfit she was like very dressed to the nines in her winter story <laughs> but it's an iconic but look, was, you know. Can't it was falter. such an iconic look. Mm-hmm. What I was getting at with the soup anecdote, you said, as the soup tweet reminds us, it is possible to care deeply about a product, story, or recipe, and to forget where it comes from in the first place. And I think that um, anecdote is very encompassing on how I feel felt reading a lot of this stuff, where I didn't remember the details. Like I feel so fondly for what it represents, but like. What you said, something you said hit me so hard because I hadn't revisited Felicity's books as an adult. And I just I only when I think of her, I think gorgeous blue taffeta, horse girl, (laughs) jiggy nye, terrifying. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But you guys say that um, the book emphasizes Rose's domestic work with its apparent comfort, not her lack of freedom and its impact on her life. This is particularly striking when we consider Felicity spends her entire series obsessed with freeing a mistreated horse whom she names Penny. Aka independence while never considering that Rose deserves the same. Mm-hmm. It's it, that was a tough moment for us doing the show. So when we started the show, we started with Felicity and rereading those books. We had no memory. I had no memory of those books at all. And me neither. It was shocking to reread those books and realize one, she spends the entire series trying to free a horse, but as you just noted, like never considers the two enslaved people and her family or her family claims ownership of is worthy of the same. And two, there's also this complication of it coming from the 1990s where that politics comes through of like, yeah, her family enslaves people, but we shouldn't think she's racist because she has a black friend because there's like this other ancillary characters, a free black person in the town that she befriends. So there's a lot going on there. This kind of like, whoa, like what were we thinking here? I think right. it's easy to say, because people often remind us, sometimes unkindly, these books are for nine-year-olds. And we're super aware that they are not for people in their 30s who studied history for a long time. But it's it's less about what what happens in the books and more about saying, like, as an adult, right, if I still claim to like this thing, you are accountable for having adult opinions, right? Like, that you can cherish something, but then also say, and I've repackaged some other ideas that I've picked up along the way. You know, otherwise it is just pure nostalgia and and it is something it's an entirely different process. Like if you can uncritically love like your mother's pudding, 
I'm cool with that. But if you're saying like, Mm -hmm. I uncritically love this thing where now people have repeatedly pointed to other aspects that you should consider, it's like that that is slightly different or the potato soup, as it were. Yeah. And I think that something we all care about is like kind of the message that like pop culture matters, like the the toys and iconography and media you consume, like all of these things that especially as young girls were taught are shallow, like the messages we internalize from them are very real and very deep, even though, okay, to people's point about this, these are for nine year olds, like they can't really get into all of the contours of this issue or whatever. I will say one thing I do like about the books is I do, I think that they talk to their readers like they're smart and like they're Mm -hmm. capable of understanding things that are complicated or a little bit more elevated than maybe a lot of books targeted to this age. How do you feel? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think in light of this era of book banning, which I think is really sad, I think part of what folks who are trying to ban books are missing is that kids can actually handle quite a bit in terms of nuance. And Mm -hmm. I think that these books speak to kids with respect and with the understanding that they can handle complicated things if if explained with compassion and clearly. And I think the books do that. And um, I think that's a really important piece of it. And I think, you know, to your point about kind of pop culture and fandom, I totally agree. And we make a point of using the language of culture to explain history about it because it's a common language for so many people. But I think, unfortunately, we're living in a moment where things are so polarized that it's almost framing pop culture, your fandom of it as like, I'm either a fan of something or I'm not, instead of thinking about fandom as itself something nuanced, like in the way that a kid might understand or be able to read these books in a really nuanced way. You know, we are also fans of American Girl in a way that, you know, might ask a lot of it, but it comes from a place of respect. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I think really speaks to the quality of the books, too, is like they were very well researched. And I think the people who wrote them really cared about it and didn't phone it in. I mean, I know everybody, there are different authors for different series. Um, but I just, to our convo about Saved by the Bell, something I wrote about is, um, how I think about, like, I used to be so scared to call myself a feminist and I largely tied that back to how Jesse Spano was treated. Mm-hmm. And I think about Saved by the Bell and to me, um, what I didn't notice at the time was a laugh track and whose jokes they laughed at and whose mm who was manipulated by the laugh track to be like, that's not funny. That's not going to land. Like if you have a feminist take, you're a drag, but the chauvinists making that joke are the ones that are more likable. And no, I wasn't cognizant of that at the time, but I think that I absorbed, like if I act like this in high school, boys won't like me. And anyway, I, and then when you research who wrote Saved by the Bell, all but two episodes are written by older adult men. So the feminist on the show is not a reflection of feminists. It's a reflection of an adult man's, interpretation of you know a second wave feminist and all of his grievances were aired through jesse's character (laughs) that is so dark i didn't know that about the writers like that is so dark but i mean even to compound onto that like there's also this kind of demarcation of tomboys as something to Mm. avoid i think that's why molly resonated with so much with me was that you know she's someone who wore saddle shoes and jeans which like spoiler alert i still do and you know, looking back as someone who identifies as queer now, I didn't as a child. But I mean, I think the danger of a tomboy was like, it's all fine if you want to act like a boy in Roughhouse. But the minute you stop expressing interest in boys, then it's like, oh, this has gone too far. We need to shut this down. And I think there was some of that mapped onto Jesse Spano, too. Like the 
the moments when she didn't seem like to need a man, it was like, er, pump the brakes. Like, this is something we now need to make her or flag as a danger. Yes. And um, yeah, I think I just now I'm I just am kind of on a kick where when I analyze pop culture things, I look at who wrote them, who was the showrunner. Like, I'm just you're always curious whose story is really being told. It's like, is it somebody's biased response to an experience or is the the people having the experience is telling the story? And I appreciate that a lot of these Mm -hmm. books are written by women, probably being informed by a lot of their own experience. Okay, there was a quote that I found fascinating because I just came across a picture of him on some, like, I think a meme account. Hold on, I have to find it. About Uncle Gard. (laughs) Is that his name? Yes. Yes. Is that Cornelia's husband? Yes. Yes, presumably. Yeah, they end up married by (laughs) the end. He's Samantha's (laughs) mother's brother. Samantha's mother's brother. Okay, you say, oh, where is it? At one point, you you address Uncle Guard, or no, you don't address him, but you say like something about him being like the franchise's first beard. And I was like, wait, (laughs) what? (laughs) I missed this. Can you elaborate on your thoughts on Uncle Guard? I mean, look, when we read those books, again, this is where we read things as adults that we flew right past us as kids. But when we read those books, it was so evident to us and call us out of what you think we're wrong. But Uncle Guard was a man who was in love with his car. Um, I think he liked Cornelia, who becomes his wife. Are they in love? I mean, open question. I'm just saying I'm putting it out there. Allison, feel free to jump in on this. But I think, you know, he was a man who was living in a time when it wasn't safe to, you know, love who he loved or whatever. But, you know, there's a lot going on there. I'm saying Uncle Guard is a complicated man and definitely the first beard in American girl history. They're also a great example of people choosing each other as family early in the American girl. So when, you know, Kirsten loses her beloved friend, Marta, she has to like refigure out friendship. And Molly has to struggle with missing her father in wartime. And with the Samantha example, her parents have passed away. So she's being raised by her grandmother, who's not always super interested in taking care of her, really. And it's really that she chooses a family with her friend, Nellie, with Nellie's sisters uh, and living with her uncle guard. And he marries Cornelia in the the process of the books. And Collectively, this kind of like discordant group of people, they choose each other to be a family. And I think that's part of also where we we pulled from, right? That all of these people have chosen each other as opposed mm. to being a family that we're just presented with from book one. Oh, I love that. And yeah, this is the value, I think, in reading as adults, like everyone's interpretation, I find really fascinating. And mm-hmm. that's what's amazing about art period is like something that's glaring to one person might not be to another. And so many of the reflections in your book about the books themselves made me want to reread all of them. Oh, okay. Per Samantha, another thing that you said that I didn't think about that's so true is how pervasive and appealing for some reason to 90s girls orphan related storylines were. It does seem true. I don't know why. I mean, a little princess, a secret garden, Eloise, or is it Madeline? And I think about... I didn't place the orphan thing, but I think about often like how many books I love to read of like young girls, you know, near dying from like waterborne illness. Did you read like uh, the what's it called? Dear America series. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're in deep on those. 
Yeah, one of yeah. my favorite books was Rifka. And Rifka is about a girl whose family is detained at Ellis Island. There was literally no chance that this would happen to me. But this book had me asking my mother questions about ringworm, about lice. <laughs> I was like, what if they have to use the hook to examine my eye? And I felt like I knew this disproportionate amount about the Ellis Island experience when we finally hit it in school. It was like, I knew that because of Rifka. And so I knew like the essence of the thing before I ever actually learned about it in school. Okay, that's how I feel about learning the essence of mail order brides and Sarah Plain and Tall versus my later obsession with 90 Day Fiance. Oh, yes. my God. Sarah Plain straight and line. Tall. It is a straight, straight did you watch? Did you watch the adaptations with Glenn Close? No, no. Oh, There's an adaptation? my God. Okay, please put your life on hold because Glenn Close made not one, but two Sarah Plain and Tall movies. There's a sequel that she also made the adaptation to with, um, oh my God, Christopher Walken plays her love interest in Sarah Plain and Tall. He's the what? farmer. And it is, their chemistry is, I can't explain it. I refuse to understand it, but I'm just telling you like something was going on with that movie. And I have both of them on DVD. I mean, it's it's a lot. I'm just going to say that. It's a lot. A, I had no idea. B, I'm just so the person that, like, I'm not a the book was better person. Typically, I've only seen the movie. And I can't even believe that I love no shame. I didn't even know a movie existed. And you know what? The movie, the first one was, remember when Hallmark, they still do this, but they have the Hallmark Hall of Fame where they only show Hallmark ads. And it's like on like one of the main channels on a Sunday night. And it's like this huge thing. Or it was when we were growing mm -hmm. up. It mm -hmm. was one of those. So the first one was one of those. Um, and then the sequel, probably straight to DVD. I don't know. But I mean, I was there. Was I it produced by Hallmark? I'm going to have to look into this now, but perhaps. I don't know. But huh. you know how Glenn Close like gives 110 to every single thing she does? Like She is yeah. in this. And he's kind of like, I don't really know what he's doing with his performance, but I mean, it's it's something. It's actually like very good. I mean, I just so distinctly remember her as Cruella DeVille. Of course. Or remember that the episode of West Wing she was on, The Supremes? Did you ever see that? No. She just like breezes through West Wing for one episode and like steals the entire <laughs> franchise. It's so good. It's so good. That's amazing. Wow. I know what I'm doing tonight. I'm shook by that. I, Sarah Plain and Tall <laughs> is just such, such I had a to share it. In my Me too. No, I'm, I'm, I was so I'm obsessed kidding. with that book. Oh my God. Yeah. Did you it's read really The Midwife's good. Apprentice? Oh yeah. We're in that. That's another old timey one where I'm like, what was in this for me? A career path? <laughs> the road not taken? <laughs> True. I just I guess I applaud my range like from Goosebumps to like Midwife's I mean, Apprentice. Well, I mean, Zach did deliver a baby in an elevator. I'm really like showing off my knowledge of Saved by the Bell. But remember, he delivers Mr. Belding's baby. Oh, my God. Why does he have to do it all? Like, <laughs> why? Wow. And also, why is it my brain has total recall of that? But I could not remember earlier today a password, something I just made on the computer like five days ago. Anyway, somebody pray for me. I'm not well, but I'm glad I still have that memory. Yeah. This is why pop culture matters, because mm -hmm. the fun way it's digested, I think that there's some shelving that holds on to it. It's it's fun to look at, fun to think about, and the other stuff gets buried. So what we learn through these things matters. And yeah, literally on just last week's episode, I brought up the Zach attacks and then asked myself, was that a fever dream? Like, what were they actually supposed to be famous? And then I realized it was a fantasy episode and they never actually were in the band with Casey Kasem's contest. We wish. Although, didn't Jimmy Fallon bring them back to perform it? Zach Attack, he reunited them. 
he reunited California Dreams. I don't remember him reuniting the Zack Attacks. Maybe before Dustin Diamond passed. R.I.P. Yes. I mean, California Dreams actually didn't embarrass themselves. They did a good job with that reunion. But that I'm going to have to look into this. And I'll, Yes, it is. I'm going to send it to you. I think like they did something with Saved by the Bell. Anyway, I'll have to look this up after. Yeah. I wanted my name to be Tiffany with an I. Wow. <laughs> so long. That's a real commitment. That's a real Because of Kelly Packard. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, okay. I can't emphasize to listeners enough. This book is so good. You will love it. It's asking a lot of like deep and existential questions peppered with so many, so much fun fanfare and nostalgia for the brand. And there are also so many hilarious pop culture references throughout it that I loved so much. And you guys just speak my language. And I was like having trouble even figuring out where to uh, focus our attention because I have a limited amount of time with you. But I'd be remiss not to ask you some very specific American Girl doll questions that are more Absolutely. surface level. Um, okay, so we know what dolls you had, Molly. What was the doll each of you most wanted? Great question. I mean, can I do I have to answer is like when I was a child or now? When you were a child. Oh boy. Hmm. I mean, I had Molly and that's what I really wanted, but really like all of Molly's accessories which I never got because they were so expensive. She had great accessories that were felt considerably more modern to the other gals. Yes. A lot more primary I, colors. Yes. And I always really wanted that Letterman jacket that American mm-hmm. Girl made, which I also never had. So not a doll, but kind of accessories. I think I really wanted Felicity, and I was fortunate enough to be given a Felicity, but I think she was the first one that after I started receiving the catalog and I was able to pour over, like I chose her, like I really wanted that doll. Molly was just sort of presented to me, but she was the next doll that I was given. I When Felicity came out, I mean, yeah, you got shipped a, a catalog and she's on the cover in the blue taffeta Christmas gown. <laughs> yeah. Her accessories were stunning. Her, her furniture was like mahogany. For the love of God, she had it's the insane. 90s apex of luxury, which is a canopy bed. I mean, they really knew what the people wanted. Yeah, I they made really her did. canopy bed. So that still exists somewhere. But like we bought um, like unfinished like wood product and we like adapted it to be her bed and then made the curtains. It like didn't look quite as good, but it it, it like got the job done. I was like, she has to have full coverage. <laughs> she did. I slept in a canopy bed, too. So I was like, I get it. Wow. Allison like chooses this long into the podcast to flex on everyone. <laughs> yeah. I think that's another part of the charming nature of. So, OK, there's the consumerism side of American girls that you're kind of like, eh, it, it, the price points weren't accessible. I think a lot of my fandom lies in the longing I felt for a lot of the things I could not have because I devoured the catalogs. And you also bring up a really important point in the book, which is this for me was a real point of entry in understanding socioeconomic differences mm-hmm. of friends. Absolutely. Yeah. And I we've heard from a lot of um, fellow fans who for whom this was the first time in their families that they actually had conversations about money with their parents because they would ask for, you know, expensive accessories or dolls or what have you that was beyond the family budget. And that was the first time or occasion to kind of have a real conversation about, you know, finances and money that was really important for them. And then some of them grew up in adulthood with the goal of wanting to be able to buy a doll for themselves, that that became kind of a sign of something or kind of like a childhood wish fulfilled. So, 
yeah, it does become, you know, really a marker of class that becomes really difficult for some people who can't attain it. Um, but then also sort of like so explains in part why some adults kind of return to it. I was at my niece's recently and she has Felicity's bed and I realized like, I don't know if I've ever seen this in person. And I just sat there as a grown woman and, and marveled <laughs> at this gingham bed. I was like, this is a gorgeous piece of doll furniture. I mean, the quality is even though they were really expensive, they also were really beautifully made toys. I also find that, you know, a lot of families have thrown away thousands of dollars in plastic cases filled with video games. And people do not ask the same questions of those people as they ask of people who collect dolls, right? Like if we look yeah. at a Nintendo and we look at an American Girl doll, I come from a line of doll collectors to us, it was like, of course, these are heirloom pieces. Of course, you take care of it. Like, of course, right. you have a dollhouse and you pass that on to other people in your family. Like, I think the conversation when I was a kid was to other girls. And now that conversation is different. But, you know, there's like a scrutiny and a criticism of certain girls toys that I think never gets asked of what other people collect. That is such a great point. And I think such a big theme of why many of us felt very moved by the Barbie movement. And I almost feel like it gave me some closure because you don't remember the day you packed your dolls away. You just remember the point where you're told you can't play with dolls to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And are little boys told to not be obsessed with cars? No. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, they just buy cars. <laughs> just, right. right. Like, and I just feel like I abruptly left so many of my girls, Barbies, American Girl dolls, like, that were friends to me. And then you kind of get made fun of for the very same thing that you were manipulated to feverishly participate in. Absolutely. Yeah. And and we're living in a time of Comic-Con being something that's so like widely accepted that people are watching movies there and, you know, all of these people participate in it. And yet we don't have something comparable for things that are validly kind of like girl interests, like American Girl. Like, where's the American Girl? <laughs> I would attend that so hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 100%. 100%. Ideally in a setting that was comparable to Camp Go On Again. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Wow. I, I just remember thinking it was so cool that Molly took off her glasses, let her hair down, and put on that Miss Victory outfit. <laughs> she was an icon for that, truly. She really was. And I love that she had glasses in many shows, positioned glasses as an undesirable Thing, or you are hotter if you take them off and like no absolutely not all and three of us are sitting here yes, wearing glasses. we're all so wearing glasses <laughs> oh my god i once had an older relative say to me totally seriously when i first got my glasses when i was like eight or nine like you know mimi guys don't make passes at girls who wear glasses so when you're old enough Whoa. you should really get contacts jokes on them i never wanted guys to make passes <laughs> at me but um <laughs> You know, like th that feeling, I think, is like still persists or like sort of the connotation of glasses with nerddom is like some kind of negative. It's very strange. What do you think was the best outfit and maybe like the most tragic fashion moment of the dolls? Wow, we love an organic segue. Have I ever told you about Pear Eyewear? Tis the season for new looks. and There's no merrier way to do it than with Pear's new holiday collection. You can switch up your look in a snap with top frames for every event and occasion. In case you aren't familiar, Pear was on Shark Tank. I love these glasses. You can get uh, your base frame starting at just $60. And they have five new wider base frame styles, by the way, for those of you like me with a big noggin. And then top frames are just $25. And you switch, you literally snap on and off the top frames to change the entire look of your glasses without having to buy a new pair of glasses. It's genius. 
I'm obsessed with traveling with my regular eyeglasses I use at night. And then in the morning, I can just pop on a sunglass topper and it's like prescription sunglasses and glasses in one. But in general, if you want to be able to change up your look for the holidays, if your kids want to be able to swap out colors and patterns and Marvel characters or sports teams, whatever the heck it is, there are a lot of Swifties out there might be wanting to fancy some Chiefs glasses. Who knows? Whether you plan on matching your PJs and pairs with your little ones, stuffing stockings, or gifting top frames to yourself, these looks were made for the most wonderful time of the year. I'm a big fan of the styles the Kirby and the Reese, but it's easy to find your perfect pair with virtual try-on to find the right frame shape from the comfort of your home, and their growing lineup of frames has options for the whole family, men, women, and kids. So make every look merry with Pear Eyewear. Take advantage of Pear's holiday sale. Go to PearEyewear.com and use code HOLIDAY20 for 20% off your first pair. And be sure to mention, be there in five cents you in the post-checkout survey. That's pair, P-A-I-R, eyewear.com, code HOLIDAY20. Seriously, that would be so cute to have kids with fun Christmas glasses to match Christmas jammies. Love. What do you think was the best outfit and maybe like the most tragic fashion moment of the dolls? Oh, wow. I'm trying to think. I mean, I'm obsessed with Samantha's cape. I've already mentioned it. So to me, mm-hmm. that's like a fashion triumph. I also love Felicity's blue gown. Iconic. The thing I most identify with is Molly's jeans because that's how, but that's like mm-hmm. too, to me, like that's too normal to me. So I probably shouldn't pick that. I'm trying to think of fashion missteps. Jeez, Allison, do you have any that come to mind that come to mind? I think Samantha's party dress is too much. I think wow. it's a miss. I think wow, if it had been written about oh in the society God. papers, it would have been like pink mess. I, I don't know. I think this one. Yeah, I don't love it. And I'll say conversely, I think that Kirsten's birthday scene and Kirsten's birthday outfit is among the clothing that I would want to wear the most, along with Molly's meat outfit and her raincoat and a few other things like her bathrobe. But I think Samantha, like she swung harder and faster and she had some misses as well. Wow. And I would agree with you. Wearing what she wore to the factory was like not great. (laughs) <laughs> oh, she went to the factory, right. She wears the think, beautiful winter outfit. I think, well, when I said earlier I, I was a reluctant Kirsten, the reason I'm reluctant isn't because I'm not proud. It's because I was given that one and I loved her so much. But also then when I started getting the catalogs and saw how like chic Samantha's clothes were, how cool Molly's furniture was, like I, I just was kind of like, God, Kirsten, like she plays with crickets. Why couldn't her <laughs> interest be a little more glam? <laughs> It's fair. It's hard to her be glam on the cool. prairie. Yeah, her trunk that. is cool. The trunk is cool. Carpet bag, not so much. No. I agree about her birthday dress, though. It is really cute. And in the catalog, she famously took out her braids for her birthday. Which exactly. I think is what influenced people. Like, it's messed up. Because she looks you think beautiful. it's going to look like that. And then you can't possibly do that. No, you really can't. Okay, so did either of your dolls ever go to the coveted hospital? No, I mean, mine are, I don't know where mine are. I'll be candid with you. I don't know where my dolls are as of this recording. Um, I'm putting them on a milk carton. I hope they return to me. They're somewhere in my parents' attic. Uh, But during their time of play with me, they never took a tumble such that I had to send them, send them there. Allison, have you sent anyone to the hospital? So my original Molly has had routine care. Like she actually sees a GP like more than I do, which wow. is like probably alarming. <laughs> I visibly no. remember someone who was probably just smarter than I was who said, you know, if you send them to the hospital, they just replace the parts. You don't get the same stuff back. 
And I audibly gasped because I had not thought of that. I had assumed it was like proper like medical care and not just replacement. And so I vowed to like never put them in a situation where they would need it. Wow. That's an important thing to know. Somebody wrote into me a long time ago and I did an episode about this saying like the key is to find small rehabilitate or like, I don't know what the word is like. Mm-hmm. Like private like, practice. Ex- yeah. Yeah. Private <laughs> practice, like small businesses who rehabilitate dolls from their original condition and that, yeah, if you send your doll to the hospital, do you have one of these from like the 80s or 90s? You're not getting back an 80s or 90s head. No, you're not. Uh, you're not. You're not getting the same person back. We have been in contact with a number of people who also are very generous. If you follow Instagram accounts, they'll give you hacks. They'll help you with things. We reached out to someone who is like a full conservation tech. And I said, like, what are they using to clean the face? And it's a very, very simple um, process. I've been able to clean my own doll's faces without them having to go like all the way through a peel or a medical procedure. Like mine are very averse to like big pharma. So I just kind of keep them, you know, like safe. (laughs) They don't have insurance. So, you know. Wow. I appreciate your tips and tricks as well the rest of the listeners because to this day, I mean, I remember my mom just t- being, talking about how expensive the doll hospital was. And, uh, you know, you're kind of weighing the cost benefit of like, OK, I could rip out one of these limbs. I could have a cause, but I don't know that they're going to fork over the cash. <laughs> and I never did. I just ruined their hair, which is regrettable, too, by the way. But I think that was a big socioeconomic distinctive part to me was going to somebody's house. And if they had the wheelchair or the cast or the crutches or whatever, I was like, that's the, yeah, that's FU doll hospital money. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And your parents teaching you a lesson that like you can if you destroy this doll, there are not consequences. The rest of us had to live with our choices. I think the hair looks better played with. I think it looks better, looser, more casual. I think the bottom line is right. Like you want to pass things down or over to people that are not replicable, like that are uniquely yours. So I think the fact that you did play with it, it's like that's a family story that no one else can replicate. Like to me, that's what adds value to things. I'm also saying this as someone I almost destroyed the family's like very old porcelain doll as a child. And so now when I'm 36, I'm like, I added value. Did I let all the sawdust out of her limbs? Yes, I added value. Like I created a family story. I added value. I love that. Mm -hmm. You guys also brought up so many things I'd forgotten about. Just so people know it's in the book, like grin pins. Yeah. Classics. Um, And kind of some of the offshoots. So like. There's American Girl, the historical dolls. And I feel like that's what I talk about the most in critique because I was of age when those came out. I get a little older when there's the pivot to American Girls of today, dolls that look like you, et cetera. But I was still of age for the magazine. I was so glad you guys brought up the American Girl magazine because that was so important. Yeah, that was probably my favorite thing the brand produced, honestly, aside from the books, because I'm not much of a doll person, like no shade to the dolls. Please don't judge me. Um, And I'm happy that, you know, the dolls exist. But really, it was always about the stories for me. And to read the magazine and see these like very earnest portrayals of other girls my age and hear what they were going through. I mean, it was just so such a genuine production and really representative, like far much more than the rest of the brand, you might say. Um, and I just love the stories, like the stories of the girls who would go on the Pioneer Trail trip and like be profiled and all these different career paths that were featured. It was just such a fascinating thing to me. My headphone just died. Hang on. Something you said about the magazine was just such an aha moment to me. You said what is fascinating and retrospectively amazing about the magazine is that it gave girls the space to talk about the anxieties and triumphs of growing up in their own words. 
It also did so without making them subject of a joke, the subject of a joke or shaming them. Other magazines for slightly older girls offered features on how to apply makeup or get a crush to like you or collected I was so embarrassed stories. So much of this content was about navigating life to please someone else or normalizing feeling shame. And when I tell you, I, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Why were all of these magazines like the, what I thought was the best segment was the parts where people send in embarrassing stories? Why were embarrassing stories such a cornerstone of, yeah, teen like, media? What was going on with that? And I think ostensibly it's to be relatable, but actually it just felt like piling on in a lot of ways or like it, it yes. presumes that you're not the girls reading the magazine aren't already navigating a world that is shaming them or making them feel self, self-conscious left, right and center. And I think that's why the magazine is so powerful, because they didn't do that. And far from that, they had a feature called Heart to Heart where they would introduce a topic like best friends or forgiveness and invite girls to sound off on it. And instead of collecting embarrassing stories, they're collecting, you know, words of encouragement or, you know, advice or, you know, stories of, you know, some earnest moment in their life that's um, related. And it was just so it's so the opposite of everything else that was out there. Yeah. And it, it is it's so interesting to think about how so many of the magazines reinforced the things that they fought against by having the embarrassing stories as entertainment. It's reinforcing that, like, we should be entertained by other people's embarrassing stories, but also feel a constant fear of shame because we will be inevitably shamed for the thing. It's just, yeah, it's weird to think about. But I loved you reminiscing about the magazine because I loved it. And I also love that you dove into the care and keeping of you, which I feel strongly about. So in this book, we're celebrating and criticizing. I think the care of care and keeping of you is an interesting example because it was progressive for the time and now also doesn't hold up. That's um, right. Yeah. Is I that, mean, yeah. Kind of what you guys took away that it's both. I think it's a both and because on the one hand, you can really see that it comes from the traditions of like our bodies ourselves and like these feminist texts that give women the power to speak about women's health and bodies in a very open, non-judgmental way and share health information. So in that regard, it's it's really revolutionary to picture that at younger girls and women. But because it only focuses on girls and women and, you know, doesn't allow for, for example, you know, trans women or trans girls, I think it hasn't aged particularly well. It also doesn't address queerness at all. Um, and that's, I think, a major silence. Um, you know, Allison got the chance to interview one of the illustrators of Karen Keeping of You, and I think she kind of had like similar thoughts. So I think I think people know more about the backstory of Karen Keeping of You than they ever did because millennials have kind of said like, hey, what was in there? Right. And it's gone viral on TikTok and Instagram. And Valerie Schaefer, who's the author, I feel like if you were younger, you didn't know Valerie Schaefer's name. Right. Like no. you, you were intentionally kind of not supposed to think of it. And when people call it like a Bible, that's really what it was like. It was supposed to feel like it just was sort of created for girls. You know, I do think that there is value in separating a book like that that was meant to be so contemporary, so of a moment and meet Felicity. Right. Like that they are doing very different types of things. I got a chance to talk to someone who is part of the firm that created a lot of the contemporary books. And one of their biggest concerns was that people, um, as many different people as possible, see themselves in the contemporary booklets. And I think she herself acknowledged that 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 they did that imperfectly. Right. Like that that's an extremely challenging thing to do and that there are things they would do differently. 
it's probably more notable that American Girl created content, right, that was trans inclusive and then received so much hate and so much blowback. They have very quietly let that drop. So Mm -hmm. I think part of it is how do we assess, you know, when they have listened to people, are they able to maintain that and the integrity of the brand? And they did stand with their content for a period of time and now have kind of very quietly uh, chosen to not continue to do that type of work. So I think that's probably more important than like going back through care and keeping of you per se, which is out of print, where it's like, well, what are they trying to do now? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I loved your interview with the illustrator. And that's another part of this book that's cool is the primary sources you were able to uh, learn from in a way more detailed way than I've ever been able to find. It really contextualized a lot of it. And I think with the care and keeping of you, analyzing it as an adult, it kind of almost defeats the purpose to me because the point was to meet young girls where they're at. And at that moment in time, it did, it, it met me in terms of like that, pa- the page where the, with the tampon, mm. was that really important? It, and it was right. almost, I almost comedically look back on it because we we're all like, oh, like it, it was kind of, the most explicit uh, in terms of what it was showing. But like, I also didn't get that level of detail in health class. I'll just say I did not read it as a young person. So I first encountered it when I was like 33. So I think that's also a very different experience because I was looking at it as a historical text from the 90s and talking to a person, Ingrid Hess, who I really admire, not because I even knew she worked for American Girl. She was doing a really fabulous project in a city I worked with that was inclusive and forward thinking. And someone said, you know, she used to work for American Girl. I said, no, I didn't know that. So, I mean, that happened very much in an organic way that we were able to get that connection. Yeah, and, oh, but cool. I I had an experience like you where I did read Karen Keeping of You when I was growing up. And I went to Catholic school, which had like even less health information than probably a public school of the same period, because there was just a lot of fear about anything that seemed to relate to sex, which your period doesn't explicitly. But, you know, I remember not getting I felt like I wasn't getting the full story and they definitely weren't teaching us about tampons. So I remember reading that page and the bra page was really informative to me. Like I just wanted information. I didn't want anything salacious. I was just trying to understand what was going on. And I just remember that book feeling like a lifeline at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Relative to the time, it felt progressive. Now it talked about some things. It misses a lot of things. And it also kind of talks to you, interestingly, from that magazine-esque POV that's, I don't think this was purposeful, but like, it kind of talks to you in a way that assumes by default, zits are the enemy. Mm -hmm. Like, the worst thing that can happen to you is to get a zit or to fall on your face in front of a boy. And it almost like implies what is and isn't desirable in an interesting way that I wonder if they would talk to young girls now like that. Even like, do you remember the game Girl Talk and the consequence of not playing Tooth or Dare was to get a zit? It, we were like very scared of zits. And Okay, I'm still scared of zits. I'll own that. <laughs> I have cystic acne now and I'm like pushing 40 and I, I wish I didn't. But wow. yeah, no, I mean, I'm not saying that's the worst thing in the world, but yeah, you have some people who are earnestly looking for information for what they perceive to be a problem. And then it doesn't plant in other people's idea in other people's heads for the first time. This thing about you is a problem. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's where it's, you know, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I don't have that much time left. Let me see what I have. I have literally pages. And <laughs> what did I not get to? You've read more of this book than my my family. So I. We respect okay, I can't it. get anybody I know to finish my book. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's just I'm savoring it. I'm like, bullshit, you're savoring it. 
so toward the end of the book, you kind of, well, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but I kind of loved the connection you drew to being podcasters. Even talking about typecasting ourselves, it's like, are you a Molly? Are you a Kirsten? How we started the episode. That even how funny it is that doing the podcast, people will typecast themselves as like a Mary or an Allison. Yeah. And it's kind of it's kind of cool that through exploring other pop culture lore, that you're creating lore in real time of your own that people can see themselves through. Yeah, it is. That's a very unexpected consequence of doing this show. You probably relate to this, too, that, you know, when you make a show, you're kind of alone in your house. You know, Allison and I recording together in our different spaces and you're not really you don't you have no idea who's going to be listening to you and what they're going to take from it. And I think the fact that not only have people, you know, enjoyed our conversations about the books and the brand and whatever in our pop culture but also feel like they have a sense of us to enough to say, well, I'm the Mary in my friendship or I'm the Allison in my family or whatever, you know, and then kind of reflect what they think that means back to us is sort of like mind blowing. Yeah, that's really, really cool. And I loved your full circle connection. I also love Pleasant Roland's full circle moment because I it, it, I never clicked with me. I, I know about Aurora, this town in New York. But why, will you kind of explain to people like what she's up to now and what she's done with her retirement with this town and how it like mirrors Colonial Williamsburg in a sense that kind of blew my mind. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of mind blowing. She went to college in Wells College, which is in Aurora, New York. And after she sells um, to Mattel, she basically like goes off into the sunset and is like, I'm done with this piece. She starts another business, but largely is kind of, you know, quasi retired. She donates to a lot of philanthropic causes. And in addition to that, she started to buy up properties in Aurora, New York, basically to air quotes, like renovate them or restore them back to their historic era, which she has determined to be, you know, like not the present moment. Um, It's ideal time. And in, in so doing of like not only building properties to look historic and renovating actual historic properties to look like a past era, She's doing exactly what people in Williamsburg did to create Colonial Williamsburg, where they not only renovated historic buildings, but built buildings that were brand new to look like they were in the 1770s or so. And in so doing, you can imagine she has not made some friends in Aurora, New York, where people have bumper stickers that say things like Aurora was pleasant before and things like that. So it's kind of like historical fantasy or like preservation through creation or fantasy that she's doing. I mean, I mean. People have made a lot of light of it. I think it's a really complicated question because she's doing it to kind of revitalize the economy and the town and so on. And I think you can sort of like there's many different sides of how people have felt about that project. Yeah, this is something I need to deep dive because I I knew about Aurora, but I didn't really connect that that's what she was doing. I think I thought she was like preserving or maintaining like the historical integrity that existed. I don't know if I realized she was kind of Well, I mean, she has. So, for example, she's bought five properties that are now all hotels and they're all within one property or like one ownership group. And it's her. And one of them has a spa that I am dying to go to. But it is so expensive. So, I mean, there's a part of it that's like, you know, one of them was a former girls school that she has revitalized to be a hotel. So Mm. it's kind of like what's going on here and who is this for and who is going to benefit from them. I was going to ask if you guys have gone there or went there for research. I've been there previously, but not like as recent as like some of the more explosive articles. So I've I've been through there as just part of like touring New York, but not for the purpose of the book. It's very nice. Like Wells College is absolutely beautiful. 
and they're very proud of her as a graduate, which I think is awesome. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I appreciate, for lack of a better term, niche drama. And the Aurora was pleasant before bumper yes. stickers. I was like, dang. <laughs> It's very, it's spicy. I'm into it. I love reading updates about it. I have not been there. And in part, we didn't go because we were writing during the pandemic. So that limited some of our travel plans. But I would still love to go there and check it out. It looks beautiful. It does. My gosh. If you ever do, please report back. Definitely. It seems it, it seems as luxurious as a trip to the doll hospital. <laughs> <laughs> we can all pay dream. Yes. yes. Well, and also I think we can agree that it's, Given its popularity now, it's only a matter of time before we do have a podcasting doll. And when that day comes, we should reconvene. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I mean, well, the 90s dolls are traumatic enough for me because like so much of their accessories in their room was like my room growing up. Oh, I know. It's a it's a little t- it's a little bit much for me to see like the see through Con Air phone as like a historical relic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's hard. And nothing was funnier when Blair came out and, it, you know. Whereas the earlier girls experienced slavery, xenophobia, being an orphan, et cetera, her biggest like hurdle was that she was had food allergies or yeah. sensitivities. Yes, yes. sensitivities. And she <laughs> dreamed of being have. an event planner. I was like, what's happened? In the most awesomely 2010s move Mattel could have made her parents owned a farm to table B&B. My God. <laughs> it's so it's so bleak. It feels like goop inspired somehow. It's just like it's probably- too much. I'm hoping one of the next ones uh, lives in a van for sport. Oh, my God. Yes. My wife <laughs> has introduced me it. to some TikTok person that now I have to follow named Abby who lives in a van. And I think she's from a rich family. And it's all very, like, performative and strange. But I can't stop watching. It's too much. I know. Agreed. Oh, my gosh, you guys. I could talk to you forever. I already went over time. But where can people find you, the podcast, and the book? So people can find me at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram and they can find our show at Dolls of Our Lives Pod on Instagram, dollsofourlivespod.com. And you can find the book wherever books are sold. We also recorded the audio book together. So if you want to listen to us, read the book to you, you can do that as well. You can find me at Allison Horrocks on all the major platforms, just exactly how my name is spelled. So amazing. And be sure to Pick up Dolls of Our Lives, wherever books are sold. And thank you guys both for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. This was so fun. Thank you so much to Allison and Mary. That was so fun. They're so smart. And I'm out of my league talking to actual historians. What a cool job. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think, like I said earlier, this is officially the, I guess, the fourth or maybe fifth episode about American Girl Dolls on the podcast. I'll make a Spotify playlist the deep dives are called grand mary did you know and american girl wash your face but as we know now don't send your doll to the doll hospital to wash their face don't want them getting a chemical peel that robs them of their 90s musk anyway you guys be sure to share with a friend who's a fellow ag dolls fan share with a former neighbor whose furniture collection you admired and borderline resented rate and review five stars so incredibly helpful and come back next week hope everybody enjoys the holiday week slash long weekend the black friday of it all remember there's no such thing as a discount on something you never needed (laughs) don't drive yourself too crazy things go on sale all the time and uh i just most importantly hope you have a good time with loved ones don't forget to think of fun prompts and questions ahead of time Because the best table 
can always be the one you're sitting at, you know? I, I, I love quality bonding over long meals, carafes of wine. I think this Thanksgiving food leaves something to be desired, but I can't get into that right now because it makes people angry. I'm actually going to London for a wedding. I am leaving the babe. I'm very nervous. Slash, I'm going to miss his cheeks. So wish me luck. Just for a long weekend, not for very long. I knew I couldn't be away that long, but I need to practice like leaving because I have to go on bo- my book tour eventually, which will be announced soon, by the way. God, I hope you'll come. So stay tuned for all that at Kate Kennedy on Instagram. And love you so much. As always, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. Bye.